to us, that takes up for us, that intercedes for us, that looks out for us. We're reminded today that as the great high priest, you do all those things and more. We pray your blessing over each one as we've come into your presence today to examine ourselves and to draw closer to you. I pray that you'll bless us not only with your presence and your forgiveness, but but also with the resolve that in the coming week we'll live a life that draws us closer to you and not farther away. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, Whitney Hopler wrote a blog post that I found fascinating. It was entitled, Spiritual Spring Cleaning. I want to read to you just a very small excerpt from her post. She wrote, when spring arrives, more sunlight brightens your home as the days grow longer. Fresh air blows in once the temperatures warm up enough to open the windows. But all the light and fresh air sometimes reveal what you may not have noticed during the dark, cold days of winter. You might see that there are parts of your house that were a little messier than you remembered. Light has a tendency to reveal unseen clutter or dirt that needs to be cleaned up around the house. But the more the light and the air flow in, we are also finding ourselves more motivated to do some spring cleaning. Spring cleaning can be more than just a chore, however. It can actually be exciting if you use the time to not only clean your home or your property, but also use that same time to start cleaning up something far greater than your house, your soul. She writes, the closer you get to Jesus, who is the light of the world, the more you invite the Holy Spirit who blows in his fresh air of God's love in our lives, the more you may become aware of how messy your soul has become. Thankfully, there is no sin too messy for God to clean up when you follow his divine cleaning plan of confession, repentance, and reconciliation. So while you're spring cleaning your house or your property, invite God to also do the work of some spring cleaning in your soul. That resonates with me, and I want to talk about this idea of spring cleaning and cleaning up our spiritual house, because it's actually a theme the Bible talks about often. Consider these words from Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 31. Ezekiel wrote to the people of Israel, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. Also, he wrote this to them. He said, each of you should get rid of some things. Get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Paul picks up that same theme in the New Testament when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 31, he says this about some things we might want to get rid of. Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness. Throw it out. Get rid of all rage and anger. Get rid of brawling and slander and malice. To the Colossians, he added some things. He said, you must also rid yourselves of things like this, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, therefore get rid of all moral filth. Get rid of the evil that is so prevalent in the world. 
Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Even Peter got in on this idea of cleaning some things up and getting rid of some stuff. He wrote, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander, and envy. The Bible is very clear about that there are times that we need to get rid of some stuff. Now, for my friend Virgil, Virgil doesn't like to get rid of things. He likes to put them organized neatly away, but doesn't like to get rid of them. Some of you, I don't nudge Fred, he's not like that, is he? I see those, that, I know there are people that's their situation, but there are some things that can't be saved, we just have to get rid of them. They need to be gotten rid of, and the things that we're talking about here in our spiritual house are things that are really incompatible with what God wants us to be, who he wants us to be. Now there's a story in the Bible that I find fascinating that really does a lot of discussion about the idea of spring cleaning and Jesus. It's a story that you've heard before, but I want to revisit it today from John chapter 2. And it's the story of the day that Jesus does some house cleaning. You pick up the story in verse 13, and it tells us that when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now you should know that the Passover is celebrated alongside of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the springtime. It's the time where, in, this, in preparation for this particular holiday, Jewish households of that era uh, had to be cleansed of all leaven. They had to get rid of all the old yeast. It was an event that coincided with the barley harvest. And when they made the new barley bread, the idea was you would have to make it not with the old yeast, but the new. It was a concept that said, it's important for us to think about every year getting rid of some stuff. God's plan for his people was an object lesson that said, get rid of some stuff. Start over fresh. And that sounds like a pretty good idea about a lot of things in our lives. Start over fresh. Well, as Jesus goes that spring to the temple, it says that in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves. He saw other people sitting on at tables and exchanging money. Now, as it was difficult for people who traveled to this holiday from great distances, it was difficult for them to always bring livestock with them, especially if you had to bring a lamb or you had to bring something that was more fragile on the trip, because some of the sacrifices would have been like doves or other animals like that. And these are animals that don't always travel well, all right? Especially if you have to travel a really long distance, it's a hard journey for an animal. If the animal has to walk that distance or you carry it, what do you do? And so what they would what would occur is that instead of bringing your sacrifice with you, you'd buy one when you got to the temple. And what was happening here, this story was, as a matter of convenience, the priest had all kinds of the animals you might need for sacrifice. Besides the lambs, there were offering animals for sin or Thanksgiving offerings as well. That's why you see the mention of turtle doves. In addition to this, Every Jewish male was required to pay a temple tax of half of a shekel. And you had to exchange your money because the Roman coin had an image on it of the emperor adorned like a god. And because of that, 
the Jewish leaders believed those coins were unclean, like an idol, if you will, worshiping a false god. And they would not allow those coins to be used to buy a sacrificial animal, which was supposed to be clean. So you had to exchange your, your unclean currency for the temple currency. Now, all of that in and of itself was fine. However, because all of that had to happen, you could imagine first that the outer courts were a noisy place. That's where all this was done. You could imagine that it was a smelly place because of all the livestock there. And you could also imagine that it was a place where some things were happening that shouldn't have been happening. I don't know if you've been to the movies lately. Had a chance to take my nieces and nephews out over the holidays to, uh, to go see a, a movie at the cinema, and as we're there, right, I was reminded of just how much they take advantage of us when we walk in those doors, right? The movie ticket's not usually that expensive, but what's expensive is $6 a cup Cokes, and $12 a bucket popcorn. Does that not feel a little ridiculous to you? I mean, I mean, I can get a Coke for 50 cents in my refrigerator, right? And I can get a popcorn for, what, 15 cents? It doesn't take much to pop a popcorn. So we get overpriced, and, and we're used to it. And probably the people were used to getting overpriced there, too. They were used to that's just how it gets done. It wasn't right. They were definitely being overburdened, but they were used to it. Now, there's another problem here. We need to understand something about the setup of the temple. So the way that it worked for worship, you had the outer court where people who were not a descendant of Abraham by birth could go to the temple to worship. That was the outer courts. So for Gentile converts to Judaism, that's the space of worship. That's as far into the temple as they're allowed to go. So if you're not a descendant of Abraham by birth, where all this stuff's happening, where the animals are, where the money changers are, that's your worship space. Try to imagine worshiping God in that space, right? That, it doesn't smell good. There's no privacy. There's no quietness. This is not at all how God intended for people to come to him and to worship. They have made a real burden for the Gentiles. It would make you feel rather unimportant to God if you had to do all that. You had to pay more money than his, the descendants of Abraham did. You had to have an inferior space for worship than everyone else had. It would make you feel, at the very least, second class. And it could make you feel rejected by God. Enter Jesus for a little spring cleaning. And this is a side of Jesus we're not used to seeing. We like the Jesus who says, let the little children come to me. And he puts them on his lap and he hugs them. We love that soft, compassionate Jesus. We like to see Jesus like that. This image of Jesus is very, very different. We don't get many of these kinds of pictures of Jesus filled with righteous or holy anger, but listen to what happens. So he made a whip out of cords. Jesus drove 
all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples saw all of this, and they marveled. And they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. Now, this did not sit well with the leaders of the temple. You have to understand something about this event, the Passover, right? It's kind of like uh, the equivalent, that's their biggest holiday. Everybody comes back to Jerusalem for this holiday. So it's kind of the equivalent of, of going into Walmart on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And like everything's happening there and you go nuts. And you start tossing over the merchandise, you kick over the cash register. People would not like that. And that's what happens. I mean, that's the day Jesus does all this. It's like the day, right? Everything's happening at this time, and Jesus does this on that day. And so they freak out. It says here the Jews, but it really means the Jewish leadership, the priests and the leaders of the council that are at the temple who are in charge of all of this, they immediately respond to Jesus this way. What sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do this? How are you able to come do this? What, what's your right to kick over all this stuff? Who made you the boss of the temple? Big question. It's a question that has a resonance far beyond that event for us in our own heart, right? Who has authority in your temple? The temple of your heart. They want to know who had given Jesus this authority. So Jesus says to them, well, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. Now, it just so happened that when Jesus came to clean the temple this day, that the temple itself was going through a huge renovation. It was not even completed yet. They'd been working on it, it says in the text, for 46 years. They'll continue to work on the temple all the way up until AD 62, Here's the crazy part of that. Just eight years after they finish, the Romans will come in and knock most of it down again. But they've been working on it for 46 years. And Jesus says, if you knock this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. So they say, it's taken 46 years. How are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus was speaking of was not the earthly temple, but his body. And he was. John writes, raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he said. When he was raised, they, they recalled what he said. They would raise in three days, and they believed what he said in the scripture, the words Jesus had spoken. The first sign of Jesus having the authority to do what he was doing had come at the wedding feast in Cana, where he had demonstrated his power over the elements by changing the water into wine. The final sign of his authority to do what he did wouldn't come until the day he resurrected from the dead that we celebrated last week. I promise you this. Jesus had the authority to do the cleaning that he did. It was needed. Sometimes we need to acknowledge and we need to invite Jesus to step into our temple, the temple of our hearts, and invite him to do some cleaning in that space. 
That day in the temple, Jesus cleansed what was a temporary problem. That day on the cross, Jesus cleansed what was an eternal problem. I don't know which of those two he needs to cleanse in you. Maybe it's something temporary that just needs to be made right. Or maybe it's an eternity issue. Maybe it's something that needs to be changed because you're not right with God for eternity yet. There's a poem I want to close with this morning. It was originally written by Walter Wagerin, Jr. It was revised by Scott Reagan. I've made some other edits to it to make it sound more like a story and less like a poem. But I'd like to finish today by just reading you a story. I shared it in a different form eight years ago. So for those long-term, long-timers here, you've heard this before, you'll recognize the story. But since I recognize that well over half of you have not been here during that time period, this will be hopefully a new story for you. The story opens this way. Before dawn one Friday morning, a young man, handsome and strong, was walking through the back alleys of a city. The young man was pulling a cart filled with cloth, all kinds of fabric, both bright and new. Curiously, as he pulled along the cart, he would call out in a clear and powerful voice, Rags! Rags! New rags for old! Can I take your tired rags? You should know the air was foul in these dark side streets of the city. The environment was tainted by the filth and the trash that living sometimes unleashes on the world. And yet, as the man called out, the air became tinged with the faint scent of cleanliness. It was as though the breeze that carried the sweet music of his voice also carried with it the hope and promise of a cleansing rain and a purifying wind. Rags, new rags for old. I'll take your tired rags. I'll take your old rags. The man continued to move through the dim light of early morning. <clears throat> His strong voice echoed from building to building and street to street. The onlookers were puzzled. For the man <clears throat> stood about six foot tall. He seemed to have arms and limbs that were strong and muscular. His eyes flashed with intelligence. They wondered what was someone like him doing here? And what was he doing? In a city like this, there was no need for such a useless profession. <laughs> Who recycled rags anymore? Could he find no better job than this, to be a rag man in the heart of a city? So the onlookers curiously watched. And soon, the rag man saw a woman who was sitting on the porch of a small house. He saw that the woman was crying into a handkerchief. Not just gentle tears, but Racked with sobs, it seemed she was shedding a thousand tears. 
Her body language said it all. She seemed folded in on herself. Her shoulders were down. Her back was slumped forward. Her knees and elbows made a sad X shape. She sat as though she had no hope. Anyone could see her heart was breaking. You could imagine that her body may have been alive, but her soul wanted to die. The ragman saw her, and he stopped his cart. The onlookers watched as he quietly walked over to the woman, stepping around empty beer cans and old newspapers and discarded toys and broken furniture in her yard. He walked up to the porch. They heard him say, Can I take the rag you hold in your hand? He said it gently and with compassion. He knelt beside her. And then in a very gentle voice, he said to her, I'll give you another to replace it, one crisp and one clean. The woman looked up into his powerful, compassionate eyes, and she saw something there that paused her tears. The ragman slipped the handkerchief from her hand, and he used it one last time to dry away the flow of tears from her face. Yet he never took his eyes from hers. And he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it almost seemed to shine. The woman looked down at the new cloth and then back again to the eyes of the man who had given it to her. The ragman slowly leaned forward, kissed the woman's forehead, and turned to walk back to his cart. Now as he began to pull his cart again, the onlookers watched as the ragman did a strange and curious thing. He put her old, used, stained handkerchief to his own face. And then, as he did so, he began to weep. He began to cry. He began to sob. He almost cried uncontrollably. His shoulders shook as the tears flowed down his face in a torrent of grief. But looking back toward the woman on the porch, the onlookers could see that she was left without a tear. She sat with her shoulders high and a look of wonder on her face. (laughs) With childlike curiosity, the onlookers followed the cart up the street, watching the ragman from a distance. He continued to call out, but now with a, a voice that sounded like someone who'd been crying for a long time. Rags, rags, new rags for old, rang his voice. Rags, I want to take your old rags. In a little while, the sky showed gray behind the rooftops. It was light enough still to make out the shredded curtains and damaged blinds that hung in the dark windows. It was then the ragman came upon a young girl sitting on the curbside. Her head was wrapped in a bandage. The girl's eyes seemed vacant, as vacant as the windows in her neighborhood. You could see that some of the blood had soaked through her bandage. A single line ran down her cheek. 
Again, the ragman paused. The onlookers watched as he turned his eyes upon this empty, injured child. He reached into his cart, and he withdrew from it a most beautiful yellow hat. And he walked toward the girl. Give me your rag, he said softly, and I will give you mine. The child didn't move. She just gazed at him vacantly as he loosened the bandage and removed it from her head. And then, as before, he tied the bandage to his own head. Those who were watching gasped at what happened next. For with the bandage went the wound. The girl's head was left unblemished while the ragman's head began to bleed. He sat the hat on the girl's head and suddenly her eyes took on an understanding and intelligence that had been missing before. She placed her hand to the side of her own head where the bandage had covered a wound that was no longer there. She smiled in wonder. And she watched as the ragman rose, now unsteadily, as though he'd been wounded or knocked hard in the head. And woozily, he got back to his feet and he moved towards his cart. And he began to call out again. Rags! Rags! Can I take your old rags? Crying out the sobbing, bleeding ragman, made his way down the street, continuing to pull his cart. Despite his wounds, the onlookers were surprised that he had quickened his pace. There was an urgency as if he had something important to do. Yet he was not so urgent that he didn't take time to stop yet again. This time he saw a person leaning against a telephone pole. And the ragged man asked him, Are you waiting for a ride to work? The man shook his head. He looked down. He made a note of the ragman's weeping eyes and his bleeding head before he replied. And he said simply to the ragman, Are you crazy? Look at my arm. And as you looked at the man's arm, you saw there was no arm, just a sleeve tucked into his pocket. But the ragman said, Rags, rags, will you give me your rags? Give me your jacket. Incredibly, the one-armed man took a look at the rag man and something compelled him to take his jacket off. The rag man also took off his jacket. Incredibly, the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And when the other put on the ragman's jacket, he had two good arms, strong as tree limbs. But the ragman was left now with only one. Now you can go to work, he said. And he moved back to his cart. Now he was struggling to make do with one arm and a wound on his head and tears in his eyes. But there was one last person that he would see that day. The onlookers watched very curiously as he made his way down one of the darkest and most dingy of streets. And there on a bench lay an unconscious drunk, 
weazened, hunched, and sick. Covered with an old, moldy blanket. The ragman paused. He lifted that old blanket off of the drunk on the bench. And he pulled from his cart a brand new comforter. He laid it over him. The onlookers were amazed as beside the man still unconscious. He laid a pile of crisp, clean, brand new clothes. And then curiously enough, the ragman took that same blanket that had covered the man and he put it over his own shoulders. Now he began to cough and to wheeze. He stumbled under the load of drunkenness. He was dazed. Walking was difficult. And yet he continued to walk. The onlookers who had been following began to weep at the changes they were witnessing. It hurt to see his sorrow. They ached each time they would see the ragman now stumble and fall, even as he continued to call out, Rags, rags, give me your rags. Who was this ragman? Why had he done what he had done, what no one else would have done, what no one else could have done? And where was he going in such a hurry? How was it going to end? And the onlookers now that were left could only follow and wonder, And finally, he moved to the dirtiest part of the city. Piles of garbage all around. And he climbed to the top of a small hill of trash. He struggled to pull his cart and its sad and pathetic load of soiled cloths. Yet with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on top of that pile of refuse. With a deep sigh, he slowly made a bed from the contents of his carts, and he lay down on it. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his old, aching bones with an army blanket with mold. His body shook under the load of its injuries and pain and disease. His eyes still continued to weep. The wound under his bandage continued to seep. And with one last deep sigh, he closed his eyes, and he died. For those who had been watching all of this, they were wearied by the weight of what they had witnessed. They fell against each other in grief, in sadness, and in exhaustion. Their eyes were heavy with tears. Their bodies were also exhausted from the journey. Their eyes were overwhelmed by the sacrifice they had witnessed, and they fell into the respite of sleep right there in the midst of the rubbish pile. It seemed as if they had slept for days, yet when they awoke, they assumed they must have been dreaming. For as they looked up, the ragman was there, he was no longer dead, but he was alive. And there he stood, folding the old army blanket carefully, 
laying it atop the neatly arranged handkerchiefs and jackets. Beside the scar on his, besides the scar on his forehead, there was no other evidence of what he had previously taken upon himself. There was no sign of sorrow or age, no evidence of illness or deformity. His body was whole and strong. What's more, all the rags that he had gathered shine for cleanliness. And then he looked to the onlookers who had been with them. And he called to them, rags, rags, new rags for old. Can I take your tired rags? Paul wrote to the Hebrew congregation these words in Hebrews 9.14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from all acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And friends, when it comes to spring cleaning, know this. Our Savior calls to us today. Rags, rags. New rags for old. Will you let him do his work of cleaning in your life? What will you give him, and what can he give you in return? He has the authority, and he is willing to take our burdens upon himself. In fact, he says, cast all your cares upon me. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. If your care is one of a need for salvation and grace and forgiveness for a life that's gone off the rails, today he offers you a new life. And if you're a Christian who's just made a mess of some spot in your life, you've let something in you shouldn't have, he says, don't carry it any further. <laughs> don't carry that any further. Let me clean up the mess. Let me give you a fresh start. I don't know what's in your heart and what's in your mind as we come to this time of invitation, but Jesus does. And I pray that you'll Speak with him, talk with him, and allow him to do his cleansing work in your life as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.